Let me encourage you to open your Bible and your bulletin. There's an outline in the bulletin. And uh, wanted to share with you this morning. Well, in fact, I might mention that uh, recently Mary said to Jean, Jean, it's time uh, at this point in your life that you at your age should be thinking about the hereafter. And Jean said, actually, I think about it all the time. I go into the kitchen, I go into the living room, I go out into the garage, and I always think, what am I here after? <laughs> well, anyway, okay, thank you, Gene. I didn't tell him that was coming. But uh, we're going to talk about the hereafter this morning. Because we come to our 10th week in this Believe series. In fact, we're completing the final leg of the first of leg of our Triple Crown where we've talked about 10 beliefs, 10 convictions that we need to have that come right out of Scripture that are basic. And then after the first of the year, early January, we're going to start with 10 actions that should result from these beliefs. How should we live as a result of these 10 beliefs? And then later in the spring, we'll consider 10 virtues, 10 qualities of life that should be developing in our lives because we're living out of these beliefs. Well, today we're going to talk about heaven and hell and eternity. In fact, there's a statement right there. Uh, this is our key belief this week. Can we say this together by faith? I believe there is a heaven and a hell and that Jesus will return to judge all people and to establish his eternal kingdom. Most Americans believe in heaven. All Christians, I think, believe in heaven. But most Americans actually don't even believe in hell. And many Christians no longer believe in hell. Well, we do because the Bible talks about hell. In fact, Jesus said a good deal about it. Belief number four was we believe the Bible is the word of God and that it instructs us in what to believe and how to live and if the Bible and Jesus talked about hell, guess we ought to believe in it. Why did Jesus talk about hell? And he did teach a good deal about it. I think it was because of his love for people. I thought about this week reflecting on that massacre in Paris. Had we been there prior to that, and if we had advanced knowledge that there were terrorists in that city that were going to invade that concert, uh, would we have remained silent so as not to upset the concert goers? Or, or would we have said, oh, well, there's just a better concert on the other side of town. I think we'd have been out there with a bullhorn shouting warnings to the people, don't go near there. Well, Jesus spoke about hell because he was warning people, don't go there, as he offered heaven. And when Jesus talked about hell, he used a Greek word that's translated Gehenna. Well, outside of Jerusalem, there was a valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And that was a valley that in Old Testament times they had actually used uh, for idolatrous practices. They would even offer their babies, their children, in the fires of Moloch. It was a pagan practice down in that Valley of Hinnom. And then by Jesus' day, it had become the city dump. It was the cast off, the refuse. There was smoke and fire that would come out of there. It was a picture of hell. It was a picture of 
of unending fire. It was a picture of outside of the city. And Jesus used that as a picture of hell to warn people, don't go there, don't choose that, as he offered heaven. Well, if we believe there's a heaven and a hell, it makes all the difference in the way we live and the way we die. And I want to just mention three three ways in which this eternal perspective will change our way of living. And uh, they're outlined in your bulletin. Here's the first. A Christian's eternal perspective takes the sting out of death. Takes the sting out of death. When Jesus began to prepare his disciples for his departure and talk to them about what was coming, how he would be delivered over and crucified, and that he'd be leaving them, they began to be distressed. In fact, they were grieving already, and he comforted them with the words that are familiar to many of you in John chapter 14. He said this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? He wanted them to know that no, there's life beyond here and on the other side of death. Death is such a reality to all of us. Most of us have had someone close to us pass away, and what a heartbreak that is. Death is an enemy. The Bible tells us that death came into this world because of sin. Sin opened the door for death and suffering, and now we live in a fallen world where there's all manner of heartache that surrounds death and the suffering that leads often to death. Well, the Apostle Paul was speaking about this to the church in Corinth where many of them were wondering, is there really a resurrection? And he, and he gets to chapter 15 and he says, of course there is. In fact, he says, the good news or the gospel is that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. He conquered death. He defeated death. And he continues on in that chapter, and you should read it in its entirety, where he lays this out, and he gets to verse 26, and he says, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. It's been defeated. It'll ultimately be completely abolished. And you folks, he said, can count on a resurrection because he defeated death. Well, what kind of body would we have? And they had all kinds of questions and speculation. So he began to talk about that in that chapter as well, about a glorified body, an immortal, imperishable body. And this would happen, he said, when the last trumpet sounds and Christ returns, and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, those of us who are alive when he comes will be changed and transformed and put on this imperishable body. And this is what he says in verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I work out on my lanai uh, most mornings of the week. And one recent morning, about a month ago, I stumbled out there in, my, in the pre-dawn darkness. And uh, all of a sudden, I felt this pain in my toe. And I realized, oh, man. And sure enough, look down there, and there's a bee 
walking around down there. And I knew he got me. And so I reached down and pulled the stinger out of my toe. Pain subsided in a few minutes, and I was able to go on with my workout. But I reflected on that and thought, that bee sting is a microcosmic illustration of what Jesus has done for us. He took the sting of death. That's what the cross was all about. I mean, death is not just physical separation of the spirit from the body. It's separation of our spirit from God for all of eternity. And when Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, he took all the sin of all the ages of all the people onto himself and the judgment, the punishment that that sin would result in. That was not just the physical suffering of the cross that he endured, but the separation that he experienced from his father. So he'd cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus took the sting that we deserved in death that would separate us from God through all eternity. And then when he rose three days later, he pulled the stinger out so that we who believe in Jesus, we who put our trust in Christ, we can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And now we who live and believe know that death is not a wall, it's a doorway. And when does eternal life begin? It begins when we believe. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you who hear my words and believe him who sent me, you shall not come into judgment but pass from death into life. That happens when we put our faith in Christ. Eternal life begins. And that's what an eternal perspective gives us. The apostle that wrote the Hebrew letter said this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, likewise, Jesus, also partook of the same, became human like us, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. When we don't know what's beyond the grave, if there's anything beyond it, we would naturally... Fear death. That would make sense. An atheist, a person who denies the existence of God, who, or just is unaware or ignorant of the, the promises of Christ, they're going to live with a fear of death. Because, after all, how long do we get to live here? 70, 80, 90, 100 years? What, whatever. But what's that in light of eternity? Is that all there is? So that moment of death is like we lose everything if we don't know, if we don't believe. And so we live our lives in fear of death. And as it approaches, wow, that fear intensifies to where some people, man, they're doing all kinds of things, freezing their bodies, hoping that someday they'll be able to have some kind of life that will go on. But, but we who know Christ, we don't live in fear of death because he who took on flesh rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and gave us life. That's what an eternal perspective does. Secondly, 
And a Christian's eternal perspective infuses true meaning into life. How much meaning can there be to this life if that's all there is? Think about it. What's the point and what's the purpose? But in fact, Scripture says everything in this life counts for the next. Saul of Tarsus, who lived religiously, ultimately looked out for himself and lived for himself. And when he found Christ, or rather Christ found him, he looked back on that whole religious experience and he said that that was worth nothing to him. But now, listen to what he says to the church in Philippi about this present life. He said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. There's meaning, there's purpose in my life. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. How did he know that it was better to go and be with Christ? In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul relates his experience in seeing heaven. He said, I don't even know if it was a vision or if I was literally there. You know, I, I don't know. But I do know that God gave me a glimpse of heaven. And he said, I can't even put it into human words. It was so amazing and magnificent. He'd seen heaven. But he said, I'd rather go there but I know it's necessary that I live on and minister for your sake and the sake of the gospel. Years ago, B.J. Thomas wrote a song, Going Home, and he talks about I'd rather be there. It's a wonderful, powerful song. Well, that's what Paul is saying right here. Much better to be there, but there's purpose in our lives here in light of eternity. Philip Yancey one of my heroes and great author, he said this, although most of us believe in an afterlife, no one much talks about it. Christians believe we will spend eternity in a splendid place called heaven. Isn't it a little bizarre that we simply ignore heaven acting as if it doesn't matter? But it does. It matters for a lot of reasons. When Peter wrote his second letter, this is what he said. He said, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Anytime the Lord delays his return, he's allowing more time for people to put their trust in Christ and not perish and go to hell. Then he continues and he said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Is that a nuclear holocaust? Well, it could be. But in any case, this earth is going to be destroyed one day. So we shouldn't hold on too tightly to the things of this world. I've had occasion to be in a black church, an African-American church, and I love to do that. Boy, do they know how to worship, and do those black preachers know how to preach. And if you've ever had the occasion to go to a funeral in a black church, wow, it's amazing. I mean, that black pastor, he'll 
paint a picture of heaven and you're ready to sign up and go because the way he describes it, it's so exciting. And I thought about that and I reflected on things I've read about the days of slavery and the early years of our nation and even before. How many of the Africans who came here found faith in Christ and their lives were difficult beyond belief and yet the hope that they held in Jesus was amazing. In fact, I've read that sometimes when they'd be working in the fields, even though on some plantations worship was uh, prohibited amazingly, they would just start humming toward the end of the day or singing quietly, steal away, steal away to Jesus. And they knew that meant that night they were going to have a prayer meeting, they were going to have a worship service and gather to praise the Lord. They would sing songs, we call them Negro spirituals, like... Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Can you imagine? doesn't take much imagination, does it, to realize why they considered that so precious. This life was tough, difficult, beyond under our understanding. But, but they looked toward home. But I think many of us get so comfortable with this life and our surroundings, we're not so sure about heaven. Maybe we don't understand much about it, but we think... I, I kind of like it here. But you know what? If we hold on too tightly here, that's all going to perish. We need to put our focus on the Lord because he's eternal and on people because they too are eternal. And that's what Peter says when he carries on here. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for all these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. We're experiencing more of his salvation and it's a, an opportunity for others to come to know Christ around us. This world that we live in wasn't the one we were made for. We were made for heaven. That's what we were shaped for. But we sometimes get confused and distracted. And what happens is when we focus on heaven, Satan's lies and distractions become less of an attraction for us. When I was a little kid in Sunday school, we used to sing a song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. We need that perspective. Because we know that uh, there's a better place than this, if we focus on that. Now, anticipating heaven doesn't eliminate the pain that we experience here, the difficulties, the trials that we go through but it sure makes them bearable and gives us a hope that there's a better place and a better home than this. We of all people ought to be the optimists, the people that are filled with hope. C.S. Lewis, who wrote so many books, in, he wrote them in 12 different genres. That amazes me. Brilliant man who passed away back in 1962. He wrote the series, The Chronicles of Narnia, that a seven-book series, 
if you haven't read it, you should find an excuse to read it. Read it to your children or grandkids or common grace kids because it's wonderful. It's an analogy of so many things. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is the first one in there. But he paints a beautiful picture of heaven. But in that book and in his writings for children, he talks about this earth as being the shadowlands. Shadowlands. The real Narnia, that's substance. And that gives us the understanding, oh no, everything we see here that is desirable on earth is just a hint of heaven. It's just a shadow of the reality. And if we like what we see here in some of the beauty, and there is a lot of beauty on earth, even in a fallen creation, still just a hint of heaven. Still just the shadows compared to the reality that God has prepared for those who love him. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life, to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. An eternal perspective will give us true meaning in life rather than some kind of artificial meaning that we try to create for ourselves and a false hope when we don't really believe. Thirdly, a Christian's eternal perspective offers exciting hope for the next, for the next life. Paul wanted to encourage the believers of Thessalonica and Kaimuki when he said this in the fourth chapter of his letter to them. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And he went on to say that we who are alive at his coming won't precede those who have fallen asleep. Oh no, he'll return with their spirits, they'll be reunited with a glorified body, they'll ascend to be with him, and then we who are here will be caught up to be with him in the clouds, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. He said, comfort one another with these words. I want you to notice that he didn't tell those believers not to grieve when someone dies. He said, I just don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. We will grieve when someone dies. We do mourn when loved ones pass away. That's natural. That's normal. But we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve with hope knowing there's a resurrection and there's a reunion. A couple of years ago, Leanna in our office told me that uh, she'd received a phone call and that uh, a lady had said she and her husband wanted to make an appointment with the reverend to make their funeral plans. And I said, okay. And I knew they obviously must not be part of our church because I wondered who the reverend was. But, but uh, Arthur and Wanda came into the office and we sat down and they said, we've been over to Diamond Head Mortuary. We got our plan you know, set up over there. Uh, but we thought we ought to take care of a church, just a funeral, uh, too, before we go. Now, we're okay. We're, we're in our 80s, but, you know, we just wanted to be responsible here. I said, okay. So then where are you going after that? He said, what do you mean? I said, 
after the funeral, where do you plan to go after that? He said, well, I don't know. I mean, we, we don't have a religion. So I shared the gospel with them, told them about Jesus and eternal life. And Arthur said, we want to hear more about this. So in the weeks that followed that, uh, I'd send them a note here and there, uh, invite them to church or offer to go over to their house or they'd come to my office and uh, make a phone call here and there. They showed up, not at church, but in an up-to-back class, our membership class one night. They came, and uh, they're both a little hard of hearing, and it was a challenge, but Mark and Yvette Branner sat there with them that night right beside them and just shepherded them through the material. And the following Sunday, Arthur came to church alone. He came out of the service afterwards. He was all excited. He said, I'm going to bring Wanda next week. I'm going to tell her she doesn't have to kneel. She doesn't have to get up and down and such. She has arthritis, and she'll be able to come. Okay. So they came the next Sunday, and they came regularly for seven months. I don't think they missed a Sunday. And uh, after seven months, they said, we're ready. We believe. We want to be baptized. I said, all right. So we planned a baptism, and uh, we took all kinds of pictures of it. It was, a, it was a celebration, I want to tell you. In fact, got a picture of Arthur and Wanda right here in the baptistry. They were so thrilled. And uh, so when I called them this week to ask permission to tell this story, she said, well, yes, it's all true. And I said... I said, well, Wanda, I, I think it will inspire the folks just to see the joy in your coming to Christ uh, and, and salvation. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, we hope to inspire, and then she mentioned a name, which I won't mention, because I've been trying to get a person in my building to come for years to church, and I talked to him, but he's never come. They've known this guy for 50 years. Well, he, they bring him every Sunday to church. So it's so exciting to me that they found the joy of salvation and they're reaching out to someone else. And uh, that's what an eternal perspective does. Well, toward the end of the Bible, in fact, right at the end, the Apostle John talks about a revelation, a vision that he has been given. And in that, he paints a picture of paradise restored. In Revelation chapter 21, and I'll just share a part of it. There's much more there. He says this in this vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her heaven or uh, for her husband. And then he talked about how God would tabernacle among men, make his dwelling among men. He'd be their God, they'd be his people. There'd be no more crying or death or mourning that he would wipe away every tear, no more pain. This would be the time when heaven comes to earth. So what happens in the meantime? When we die, do we go to heaven? Well, the Bible says, in fact, the Apostle Paul said, to be absent from this body is to be at home with the Lord. Yeah, you're present with the Lord. And when he returns, he brings with him the spirits who've gone to be with him and reunites them with an immortal, glorious body. But where are they in the meantime? The new Jerusalem, that 
holy city that Jesus promised that he would prepare. But there will come a day at the end of the age when that holy city, New Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven to earth and will have heaven on earth. And the paradise that was lost in Genesis when Adam and Eve forfeited the creation that God had given and creation itself fell, it's restored when heaven comes to earth. Now, on my way to church on most Sunday mornings, I stop and talk with about three or four Jehovah's Witnesses who have become my friends. And I don't agree with much of what the Watchtower teaches, but I think they got this one thing right. Uh, this heaven isn't going to be discarded. It's going to become, or excuse me, this earth isn't going to be discarded. It's going to become a new earth, according to Revelation, when heaven comes down to earth at the end of the age. So everything that we like here gets better. No mosquitoes, no natural disasters, no none of that stuff, but a new heaven and a new earth. Randy Alcorn wrote a book years ago called Heaven. I pulled this out of our resource library, and it's a worthwhile read. Years ago when my mom was diagnosed with a terminal illness, I recommended this book to her, and she read it, and it just filled her with joy and anticipation for what God had prepared for her in heaven. And she stepped into eternity about three years ago. So much, he says in here, just counters what we've heard. Rumors about heaven. I'll throw out a few here that he mentions. And uh, we have assumptions, some of these rumors, but the Bible says something different. For instance, we have this idea that, that heaven is non-earth, but the Bible says, oh no, it's a new earth. We have this idea that Heaven will be unfamiliar and otherworldly. But the Bible says, oh no, there will be so much that is familiar and earthly. We think, oh no, we'll be disembodied spirits uh, when we get to heaven. But the Bible says, no, we'll have resurrected bodies, glorified bodies. We've got this concept that uh, when we get to heaven, there's really nothing to do. We'll just kind of be floating around on a cloud, maybe strumming a harp. No, the Bible says there's worship that will reign with him, that there's work to do, that we'll be among friends and loved ones. If you think that heaven is an eternal worship service, some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can handle that, you know. Well, we enjoy our singing, but do we want to do that forever? Uh, do, we, do we want to hear that sermon go on and on? No, in fact, I'm hoping this will end soon, but... There will be so much to do. In fact, if there are billions of galaxies and we get to reign with Christ, what does that mean? There will be work to do. Murray, there's a project up there waiting for you. <laughs> there's, there's so much that God has in store for us, we can only begin to imagine that. We think that uh, when we get to heaven, we'll have instant and complete knowledge of everything. But no, the reality is we'll continue to learn. We'll continue to discover things. We think, oh, heaven will be boring. Hardly. It will be fascinating when God begins to reveal to us all that he's prepared for us in that paradise restored. Let me share an illustration with you that comes right out of this book. Imagine someone takes you to a party. 
You see a few friends there. Enjoy a couple of good conversations, maybe a little laughter. There's some decent poo-poos. Party's all right, but you keep hoping it'll get better. Maybe give it another hour and it will. Suddenly your friend comes to you and says, I need to take you home. Why now? You're disappointed. Nobody wants to leave a party early, but you leave and your friend drops you off at home. As you head toward the door, you're feeling sorry for yourself, all alone. But as you reach for the light switch, you sense that someone's there. Your heart's in your throat. You flip on the switch, surprise! It's a party! And there are people there that you recognize. They're smiling, familiar faces. You smell your favorite foods, some just coming out of the oven. And there are tables lined with food. It's a feast. And you recognize the guests that you haven't seen for a long time. Then one by one, people begin to show up that you have known and some that you've not known. But they're all grinning. And you realize this turns out to be the real party. You realize if you'd stayed longer at the other party, as you'd wanted, you wouldn't be at the real party. You'd be away from it. Sometimes people with a terminal illness or facing imminent death feel cheated, disappointed, thinking that they'll miss so much when they leave. The truth is, the real party is underway at home, precisely where they're going. They're not the ones missing the party those of us left behind are. There's a party waiting for those who believe. But we have to believe. And let me close with this. Pascal's Wager. Some of you may have heard of that. Or certainly of Blaise Pascal. He was a scientist back in the 1600s. He was a mathematician. He, he is credited with coming up with the first prototype of a computer. Brilliant man devoted follower of Jesus. And he proposed what they call Pascal's Wager. He said, believing and unbelieving are like two sides of a coin. And everybody has to call, call it before the cosmic coin flip. Are you going to believe or disbelieve before you step from this life? And he said, let's suppose that tales would be unbelief that you don't believe in God and you reject any knowledge or notion that Christ came into this world to save sinners. That's tales. And heads would be believing in God and that Christ came to give life to we who desperately need it. So he said, let's say that you choose tales. You choose not to believe and uh, the coin's flipped and it comes up tales. And you were right. There's nothing beyond this life. So what did you gain? Nothing. You were right. Congratulations. There's nothing else. But, but, but what if you were wrong? Wow. What have you lost? Everything. I mean, if there's a hell, if there's a, an absence from the presence of God, it, it, you've lost everything for all of eternity. On the other hand, if you choose heads. You choose to believe in God and receive the gift of salvation through Christ and sure enough it comes up tails and there's nothing beyond this life. What have you lost? Well, you have actually experienced the presence 
of a company of people that are positive and looking forward to a future. You've experienced love and joy and peace in this life. You haven't lost anything. What have you gained? Everything. A relationship with God that lasts forever and heaven that goes on and, and all that God has prepared for those. Each of us has to make a choice in this cosmic coin flip. And the consequences of each are, wow, what difference there is. We can choose to disbelieve and reject Jesus. We can choose to believe. Each one takes faith, by the way. But one makes all the sense and has the backing of the Word of God and the Son of God who came to save us and give us life. Choose life. Choose Jesus. And let's come once again then to that statement that we began with. Let's declare it with faith together. I believe there is a heaven and a hell and that Jesus will return to judge all people and to establish his eternal kingdom. Lord, thank you for giving us understanding and by your grace and mercy uh, the capacity to receive this great gift. Help us to keep eternity in view, to live in light of eternity, and to love people around us with your kind of love that they too might know the Savior. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.